Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, December 21st. Canada's population exploded by 430,000 people in the past three months alone. What's behind the boom and how will it impact the Canadian economy? Those are a couple of the questions we asked Marc Desormeaux, Principal Economist, Canadian Economics with Desjardins. The Russia-Ukraine war showing no signs of slowing down, now 666 days into the conflict. We'll discuss where things stand as we head into 2024 with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. And if you're looking to give the gift of generosity this holiday season, our friends at the Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary just west of Calgary are looking for some help. With details on how you can aid these beautiful animals, we checked in with Kara Dauhanyak, fundraising and event manager for Yamnuska Wolfdog Sanctuary. Canada has seen a population boom of 430,000 people just over the past three months. What's the economic impact of a big population boom like this? Joining us to talk about it is Marc Desormeaux, Principal Economist, Canadian Economics with Desjardins. Hi, Marc. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Can we talk about, first off, do we know what's behind the population boom? I mean, that's an explosion, 430,000 people over three months. Where are folks coming from and why to Canada? We do know what's behind it. There's an important distinction to be made on immigration. People talk about immigration as a driver of population growth. There are permanent residents arriving under the federal government's targets, the 500,000 people a year, that's only accounting for about 30% of the growth. Really what we've been seeing over the last year is an explosion of what we call net non-permanent residents who made up about 70% of the gains at the national level. This includes international students and categories like temporary foreign workers that are coming into the country to fill job openings. So that's really been the driver of the population growth we've seen. And that just has myriad implications for the Canadian economy going forward. Yeah, which we know, obviously, right? A population boom like that, it's very, very difficult on the housing market with rent, inflation, housing prices, and and simply not enough houses to go around, correct? Population growth contributes to demand for housing. There's no question when there is an influx of individuals coming into a place, they need somewhere to live. And so naturally that puts upward pressure on uh, on housing prices and on the rental market, which we've seen a lot in the last few years. Really over the longer run, it is about building more housing. There's a supply gap at the Canadian level that's existed for multiple years, even before we saw population growth take off. And so it's incumbent on all levels of government to come together and ensure that the kind of housing we're building meets the needs of a growing population. So overall, when we have a a population boom like this, what, what does it mean for the economy as a whole for this country? I think there's a few things that we should talk about on this. First of all, obviously, if you have a large influx of population of people who are buying goods and services, then that contributes to economic growth. It contributes to consumption spending. We've seen the Canadian economy continue to grow, in fact, over the last year, despite the fact that there is this downward pressure from interest rates and we're seeing weakening economic growth around the world. The other thing it does is that this can add to inflationary pressures, of course, uh, by stimulating consumer demands. Then really, you know, one of the reasons that we have these policies in place for immigration and and for non-permanent resident admissions is that there are so many job vacancies in the Canadian economy right now. There are open positions that are going unfilled. And so these people can 
help to fill those positions, uh, ultimately reduce some of the upward pressure on wages that we've seen and contribute to weaker inflation over the longer run. Mark, as an economist, as we look into 2024 with the current population boom we're experiencing, what do you anticipate is coming our way for us as citizens of this country in the next year? I guess I would make three points. The first thing is that at Desjardins Economics, we are predicting a short and shallow recession at the Canadian level next year. We think that the Canadian economy hasn't felt the full impacts of higher interest rates, and so those will increasingly be felt with the slowing economic growth. Second point I would make is that in Alberta, things are looking much better than in other parts of the country. There's less exposure to housing, you're getting contributions from energy, from renewable energy. Um, you know, it, we think that Alberta will be spared the worst of this slowing economic growth environment. Uh, the other thing I would just highlight is that when we think about such strong population growth, we need to be looking not only at overall GDP growth, but at the rate of GDP per capita, GDP per person. Uh, so over the last year, population has grown by 3.2%. That compares to only 0.5% for GDP. So it means that this skyrocketing population growth is stimulating the economy, but not in, in a way that is uh, allowing incomes to keep up to, to population growth. So our overall level of income per person is actually declining. Uh, so we need to be watching that closely. We need to be building more housing. We need to be looking at ways to encourage productivity growth in Canada. Otherwise, our long-run prosperity is at risk. Mark, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate the conversation. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks. Mark Desormeaux, Principal Economist, Canadian Economics with Desjardins. Boy, hard to believe 2024 is on the horizon and the war between Russia and Ukraine is continuing. No signs of slowing down. Now 666 days into that conflict. What can we expect heading into next year? Joining us to talk about it is, again, Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for joining us once again. Good morning, Sue. Appreciate it. What are the anticipated next steps in the NATO expansion saga involving Sweden and other countries? How might that change sort of the, you know, what's going on with the the conflict and the war? So the Swedish accession, uh, it's almost gone through, but not quite, uh, because the, uh, the Turkish parliament has not yet passed its approval. So, uh, but, but that, I mean, no one's really hung up on that, I don't think. It's just not a given until it's a given. Um, but I think it will go through. But, see, so you, with, with, and Finland, of course, is now in. So uh, that side of the equation, that kind of, for the Russian point of view, that's a secondary concern. It's a concern. And they're, they've said that they're going to establish the, their old Western military district, which they had in the Cold War period, and they're going to put it up there. But really, from the, the Russians are really not, not yelling and screaming too much about that. They're really focused on the war in Ukraine, and that's where they're putting their effort right now. 666 days in. What do we know and to what extent of Russia's goals and objectives? have they? I mean, they've got to have changed over the past year, you know, because it, it, it wasn't what Putin expected, obviously. Yes, but the interesting thing is, as we speak at the end of this year, is that 
uh, the Russian position has gone back to the original position from all the public statements that we're picking up. So, yes, there was this period where uh, the initial operation didn't go well. 2022 was a good military year for Ukraine, a bad one for Russia. But in 2023, the Russians stabilized their defense lines. And with Ukraine launching its, its offensive in June, aiming to break the Russian defense to the Sea of Azov, a 60-kilometer to 90-kilometer drive, the Ukrainians managed 14 kilometers against a very strong Russian defense. So now, as we move to 2024, we have a different situation. We've got uh, Russian um, tactical, I emphasize tactical, not strategic, momentum occurring along the 1,000-kilometer the front. In some areas, they're advancing a little more, but they, Russians now are doing the advancing and the Ukrainians are now on the strategic defense. So that's changed the equation. Correspondingly, the Russian um, uh, uh, pronouncements have also adjusted themselves back to the maximalist positions. So now the Russians are taking the position that you, uh, Ukraine has got to uh, essentially uh, give to the Russian demands, which is a, a neutral Ukraine, no NATO for Ukraine, uh, and, uh, and the eastern territories that the Russians have taken, the four oblasts, plus Crimea, which they took in 14, becomes part of the Russian Federation. Mm. Those are the Russian demands now. It's, they've been very clear for the last few weeks. Putin was on uh, 14th of December to the, the press, uh, where he gives his annual thing, and that he, it came out loud and clear. And his spokespersons have been saying the same thing, in fact, even yesterday. Uh, how has the the foreign aid uh, affected what's going on in terms of how well Ukraine is fighting back against Russia? Because certainly, you know, with focus now on Gaza and and Israel, it takes a lot of the the focus and the money away from this Russia Ukraine war. Correct? Yes, correct. And so what's happened is that, and again, we we we, we must remind ourselves this is a war of attrition. Right, all of 2023 was a war of attrition, and we're going into 24 with a war of attrition. That means heavy consumption of everything, uh, money, uh, ammunition, equipment, and unfortunately, people. And uh, so, so the, the, the Western, and, and Ukraine depends almost exclusively on the West for everything but its people, as people are its own issue. Um, the Russians generate a lot internally. Um, they benefit by a, a supply line from North Korea and Iran, but they are less dependent for outside sources, so they have a somewhat of an advantage there. Now, in the in the Ukrainian side, with the with the West, uh, particularly the United States, here they're the key, uh, looking at Israel a bit, um, well, a lot. Um, Ukraine has sort of fallen into the the background, and the American Congress was unable uh, to come up with an aid package. For Ukraine, it didn't do it for Israel either, because they have a disagreement about the southern border with Mexico. But so that's been punted to January. The European Union also was unable to come up with a package of assistance for 2024 due to a Hungarian veto. That's also been punted to 2024 January. What this means is the the supply line to Ukraine is drying up. It's not finished. It's not dry. But the Ukrainians have already had to adjust how they fight. And they've gone on the defensive for a number of reasons. One is the Russian line is very strong. Two, they're running out of uh, ammunition and equipment. So, and they're hurting with people. So all that means is they are, they are uh, kind of slowing down their military operations. And they're waiting to see what happens in the new year and what the supply lines look like. But even if the supply lines continue to flow, as they very well may, 
there is a bigger problem for Ukraine, which is the people power. And Zelensky is now publicly mm-hmm. acknowledged in the last two days or so at a press conference that uh, his chief of staff has made a request for half a million more people to continue the fight if the Ukrainians want to uh, achieve their objective, which is to, to, um, to push Russians out of all of uh, occupied Ukraine to the 1991 borders, including Crimea. So tough, tough slog here. Yeah, you're not kidding. Okay, Andrew, well, you're the expert, so we're going to get you to look into your crystal ball. Do you see an end to the conflict in 2024? Do they come to some sort of a resolution? So if you're asking me to look through a crystal ball, and therefore you can't hold me to this, uh, <laughs> murky crystal ball, but my murky crystal ball suggests that by near the end of 2024, uh, there has to be a, a far more, more attrition. No, no side is ready to make a deal yet. However, uh, if the attrition continues as it might, and no breakthrough occurs as is unlikely, not impossible, then exhaustion will set in particularly on the Ukrainian side and on the people power side of the equation, the sense that if they get to the point where they cannot put people behind weapons, they have no choice but to look at a ceasefire. That may, and regardless of the political, the political calculus then changes. That may happen later this year, uh, but not, not in the near future. Andrew, thank you so much, as always, for breaking it down for us. Really appreciate your time. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Same to you, Sue, and to all your listeners. Thank you so much, Andrew. Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. If you're looking to give the gift of generosity this holiday season, our friends at the Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary just west of Calgary are looking for some help with their beautiful animals. Joining us is Kara Downyak, fundraising and event manager for the Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary. Hi, Kara. How are you this morning? Thanks for joining us. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us today. I've seen the sign. I will be honest with you. I've never stopped in and I've been meaning to and meaning to. So tell us about the Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary. What are you all about? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit organization just located outside of Cochrane, going west on the 1A Highway. Um, And we are home to 43 permanent resident rescue wolf dogs who have come to us from varying um, situations. Some of them are owner surrenders, others come to us from transfers from other organizations. And then we even get animals from abuse and neglect cases. So we give these animals basically a second chance at life while also educating the public and inviting them into our space to learn a lot more about the wolf dogs as well. Okay, and I know it seems an obvious question, but these are literally dogs that have mated with wolves? Yeah, good question. So uh, these animals are animals that have some amount of domesticated dog in them and some amount of wolf in them. So uh, at one point in captivity, they did breed together. Nowadays, it's usually wolf dog to wolf dog breeding, but you still have um, kind of those content categories uh, still present and that wolf still present in their lineage um, and their DNA. So you will see it on a spectrum in terms of how much, but we do have a lot of animals that have lots of wolf in them with a little bit of dog and then on the complete opposite end as well. And I'm guessing, obviously, that's why you're getting surrenders. This is not a house pet. Yeah, so these guys are extremely challenging animals to own. Um, As you can imagine, having an animal that has wolf in it, it does have wild instincts. So uh, some of those challenging behaviors that we see are that they are escape artists. They're extremely hard to contain. They can be extremely destructive. They have resource guarding tendencies. But the biggest thing um, is that they don't really show a companionship towards humans. They don't really have much of an affinity towards us. Um, So if somebody is wanting them as a pet to be their best friend, you're going to get the exact opposite. And while I know that cats are 
very loving. <laughs> I like to describe them more so as like a feline than a canine. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that can be a scary situation if you have kids or just, I mean, you're around human beings and these are wild animals. So tell us a little bit about this Christmas fundraising campaign you have going and, and why it's important. Yeah, so we are hosting our Canid Christmas campaign and this year it's called Pack the Stockings. Um, basically what we're doing is that we are fundraising for the wolf dogs um, to allow them to celebrate in that Christmas cheer as well. They definitely deserve it and they've all landed themselves on Santa's nice list. <laughs> um, but also we want them to start off 2024 on the right paw. Um, so a couple of things that we're doing to facilitate that is that we are taking donations in form of monetary donations. Um, this is going to go towards our rescue and recovery pens where it's going to be a space that we're building basically to house wolf dogs in a stress-free environment whether they're recovering medically or they're new animals to the sanctuary so they can decompress um, and then also you can shop our Amazon wish list or our general wish list um, and you can purchase physical items in which we'll stick underneath the tree for the wolf dogs and then we'll give to them uh, during the Christmas season as well. I love it how many did you say you have? We have 43 residents. And how, how often, like, will you get each year, how many new wolf dogs might be, you know, given to you, whether they're, you know, they were attempted to be a pet or, or you know, however you do get a hold of them, how, how many might more come in each year? Oh, that's a wonderful question as well. Um, it fluctuates quite a bit. Um, we were averaging um, about three animals per year. In the mm -hmm. last three years, though, that has bumped up to seven animals per year. And we've always got our ear to the ground listening to what's happening in the community. So on the drop of a hat, that could fluctuate also immensely. So we know of potential things happening in the community where we may need to rescue animals um, immediately. So we're always on the ready for it, too. And that's why these rescue and recovery pens are really important for us to build at the sanctuary and they are wild animals and they are carnivores so it's got to be expensive to to feed and as well as house them right yeah so as you can imagine um with 43 mouths to feed we actually feed 150 pounds of meat every single day to these animals um so that can be quite costly um but then also for all of our animals at the sanctuary too we do provide them enrichment daily so mentally and physically stimulating them um that obviously we have to use resources for that and then their enclosures are about an acre and a half to three and a half acres in size so maintaining those and building those are really costly as well um so being a nonprofit, we rely heavily heavily on the support of all of our supporters and followers to be able to do what we do so you've got a christmas fundraising campaign folks can go to yamnuska wolfdogsanctuary.com donate there get more information through the year beyond christmas i know the Kara. i know money's important when you're trying to make sure that these things, you know, you've got the food and you've got the 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 the, the places, the the like, I don't want to call them cages because I know that's not how you refer to them, but you know, a, a safe space for these animals. But beyond that, are there things through the year that folks can do to help out? Yeah, definitely. So one of the biggest things is honestly coming out and visiting us. Um, we are open to the public and we do educational tours and we facilitate people being on site and really experiencing and building relationships with our animals. And that's a great way to learn about wolf dogs and be an advocate for them out in the public. Um, and all the proceeds go directly back to the sanctuary as well for your admission. 
Um, but then we also have campaigns that run regularly. We have events that run quite frequently. And um, one way, too, is that if you're wanting to give reoccurring gifts, which is really beneficial for us because that gives us projected income, is um, we have our Kuna Community Donor Program in which you can give monthly. And that is extremely um, helpful for us um, in projecting what we can grow and do in the new year. Love it. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I see it on our community Facebook page in my neighborhood, people if you've got, um, you know, freezer burnt meat in the freezer or blankets, that sort of thing. Can people donate that to you as well? Yeah, definitely. So we will take um, freezer burnt meat that's uncooked, unseasoned. Um, obviously, like we kind of discussed, there's lots of mouths to feed mm-hmm. and they love variety. Um, so they would be very willing to gobble that down. Um, the only thing that we ask is that you just contact us to make sure that we've got some freezer space before um, we accept it. Um, but yeah, we are very, very willing to take that off people's hands and Perfect. very much appreciate it as well. Wonderful. So many great ways to help these beautiful animals. Thanks so much, Kara. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you and, yeah, Merry- the, and the hairy beasts out there. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. And I'll let them know. Thank you. Kara Doniak, fundraising and event manager for the Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary. Yamnuska Wolf Dog Sanctuary.com.